I'm Zach. I'm a musician, a former worship leader. I helped destroy a megachurch, and I'm not really sure what I believe anymore. I'm Dave. I'm a theology Bible nerd, a movie buff, an occasional preacher, and I'm still an evangelical. Do, do you have to shout like that? You have to. That I felt like shouting today. That okay? All right. This is Veterans of Culture Wars. Veterans of Culture Wars is a podcast where we talk about the beliefs, history, culture, and personal stories from evangelical Christianity. We welcome you to the podcast, whether you are a believer or not. And we have another great episode for you today. Zach, like if there's a Venn diagram of my life, I think this episode is like dead center in that Venn diagram. So my interest in Christianity, obviously, is still an evangelical and also just loving movies a lot. This episode is right up my alley. Yeah, I have a lot of connections, too. Uh, I know at the beginning, you know, I say the things about me, you know, help destroy a megachurch. And I feel like, you know, our, our guest listened to one of the previous episodes and she she already has some familiarity with what I mean by that. But uh, I was prepared, you know, if asked, what's that about? I, I'd be able to say, well, yeah, you know, I, I lured the pastor of our church into the airlock and then just opened the gates and blasted him into space. <laughs> um, I, I've learned from the best. So <laughs> there you go. You learn from Ripley. And so uh, some of our listeners, uh, may recognize that reference to uh, the Alien movie franchise, which uh, we are going to talk about on a podcast about evangelical Christianity. That's right, because uh, with us on this episode, we have an author who has written a book called Becoming Alien, The Beginning and End of Evil in Science Fiction's Most Idiosyncratic Film Franchise. And that is one of the greatest, that's got to be the greatest subtitle of this year completely awesome um (laughs) so yeah we have sarah welch larson with us um to talk with us about the alien franchise and evil and other theological stuff welcome sarah thanks for having me i'm excited to i can i mean everybody knows i can already talk about alien to no end so i'm delighted that you're giving me yet another platform to talk about alien and about theology oh we are so grateful you're here sorry and and you got the email right that we're going to focus exclusively on alien resurrection. Sign me up, honestly. <laughs> it's my least favorite movie in the series, but it's the one that I can't stop talking about. So bring uh, it on. I, yeah. I have a I have a confession to make, and I kind of didn't do my homework. Um, I have seen every alien movie except for the alien versus predators, but I think it's common knowledge that we just leave those. They don't out. count. You're good, right? But I have never seen Alien Resurrection. So. I never shame people for having not seen any given movie because that means that they get to watch that movie for the first time. And seeing Alien Resurrection for the first time is something that I kind of wish that I could do again just because it is completely bonkers. Um, And there's a lot going on there. I don't know if it's all coherent, but it is a lot of fun. Cool, cool. The miracle of life. 
get to see a, a, a beautiful baby. An extremely beautiful newborn baby covered oh. in slime and yeah. absolutely. Oh my lord. Okay. Well, I mean, your book your book is so fascinating. It honestly makes me want to watch it. And I think he I think he even had a blurb from uh Josh Larson. No relation. We were talking no uh yeah. <laughs> we were talking a little bit before we started recording about uh that there's no relation, but but yeah, he was mentioning like you'll immediately want to watch all six alien films again. And I think that was true from my reading of the book. I'm like, man, yeah, this it's so interesting that I wanted to dive back in. I've, I so far I've revisited Aliens, but I have to watch uh, some of the other ones again. And Josh Larson does the Film Spotting podcast with Adam Kemp and, our, and he wrote a, a wonderful book called Movies Are Prayers. Mm-hmm. Um, your writing is is most commonly featured on the 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 long form movie site uh, at Brightwall Dark Room, mm-hmm. um, but you you've written for other outlets as well. Think Christian. Um, and then I've also podcasted with Think Christian as well, which is also with Josh Larson. So that's where that connection comes in. I've, I've got some interesting uh, background with, with Alien, I think. I actually, I saw Alien 3 while on a lot of morphine. Oh, no. Uh, in, on a, uh, it was a cut for, you know, uh, edited for a hospital audience recovering oh, from a no. cancer surgery where for a series that's that has a lot to do with body horror and 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 changes to bodies you know i was literally they, they removed a third of my foot and replaced it with flesh from my back for and i i was uh lying there watching other bodies getting uh destroyed but in a somewhat sanitized for a hospital audience sort of way that and sounds like the worst possible way to see that movie <laughs> I think you found it trying to recall what the movie had in it. I realized in watching it now and watching the others that I think I filled in a lot of my memories of it with just bits of the trailer to alien resurrection. <laughs> oh, Oh wow. That's a tonal shift too. Cause it was 97. So that the trailers mm-hmm. for that would have been all over. Mm-hmm. So I was surprised in watching alien three that there was no Winona Ryder. Let's, I guess let, let's start off. Before we get into the movies, let's start off with uh, sort of your your backstory with evangelicalism, uh, your your connection, and and did did you grow up in an in a evangelical family, and what's been your relationship with that? Yeah, um, I was raised evangelical, although at the time I think I just called us non-denominational, um, and part of that was because due to the nature of my dad's work, we moved around the country a lot when I was growing up. Like every couple of years, we would just pick up, we would move somewhere, um, and we went to a pretty wide variety of churches as well. So there wasn't really any loyalty to any one denomination in particular. Like we went to a Bible church and a Presbyterian church and a couple of Baptist churches and then a few that were just like completely unaffiliated with anything except themselves. Um, but my parents had been raised in um, Catholicism and the Lutheran church, respectively. So hmm. I sort of took it like... I took it to mean that there was something bad about liturgy, even though that was not something that my parents had told me at all. It was just my takeaway was they were raised in this. They said they wanted to do something else with their beliefs. Um, And so I just assumed that any church that was liturgical was probably not really the actual church. So I grew up very specific, like I grew up very suspicious of liturgical church and especially like Catholicism, uh, 
um, Episcopalianism and so on. So it was just one of those things where like, I wasn't familiar with it. I was very nervous about like, if we went home to visit my parents' parents, like going to um, a church service and then doing communion. And I would have no idea what to do because like all of the, all of the rules were slightly different um, and I wasn't sure what to do. So there was always like this nervousness and this suspicion about what was going on. Um, Add on top of that, I was also homeschooled all the way through high school. Um, So there was kind of this double whammy of like, I was homeschooled partly because it was just easier to homeschool when you have to pick up in the middle of um, the school year. And then it was also partly due to religious reasons. And then partly because I just learned how to read at a very early age and then just sort of stayed ahead in some subjects from then on. So um, grew up going to a wide variety of churches in a wide variety of states where the general idea was that we would only go to churches that quote unquote preached the Bible. And quite often that feels like shorthand for this is an evangelical church mm-hmm. um, where there isn't necessarily like an over overview or oversight, or it's necessarily part of a larger network of churches. Um, and then one of the other results of growing up homeschooled was that there was a lot of um, religious textbooks. So I did Abeka, I did Sunlight, we did a bunch of other <laughs> textbooks as well. Um, and one of the things that I read when I was in middle to high school was a lot of missionary stories. So a lot of stuff like, um, I don't know, jungle, like it's a jungle out there or like different, different stories, Elizabeth Elliot's work, things like that. The, um, the serpent in the rainbow. I did not read that one, Um, but I read a lot of like histories of, I mean, everything from like the 1800s all the way up until the 1950s. And being the age that I was, I couldn't necessarily differentiate between like when something was happening in the books that I was reading. So um, I was under the impression that all of these people were still around and still doing missions work the same way that they were in the 90s and the early aughts as they had been doing in like the 1950s or the 1850s. And so I was reading all of these books and almost every single one of them has a moment very early on where the missionary realizes like they're being called to the mission field and they don't want to go. And therefore that is why they must go. And I think I sort of internalized that call in myself as well. So from 14 or 15, like I thought I was going to go and be a missionary. So when I graduated high school, I went to college with the express intent of getting a linguistics degree so that I could go and be a Bible translator. Like that is the main reason why I went to the school wow. that I went to. Yes. Yeah. Did you have uh, did you have any idea of what country or different countries that you maybe wanted to go to? I went on a couple of missions trips uh, when I was a teen. My parents were also very trusting. So at the same time as I was being homeschooled, they were also very discerning and very trusting about like what we were allowed to do and not do. I went on a couple of trips with my church, but without my parents to Thailand and to China. Um, and then they also allowed us to take different like language courses. So I took Spanish and Arabic and Mandarin because that's what I was interested in. And my parents really like nurtured that interest. I didn't really have any idea, but I did know that at the time, one of the countries that had the most languages that had not been translated or like written down into any other language was Papua New Guinea. So I was thinking maybe that particular area of the world, because it's just a very high language density. So I went to um, I went to school for a linguistics degree. I realized after grad school applications were supposed to go in that missions work was not what I was supposed to be doing. And so I just spent a year um, 
kind of trying to figure out what to do, thinking about other program like grad programs because I knew I wanted to go to grad school in some on some level, just applying to other grad programs. Um, and uh, I actually ended up interning at the church that I'd been going to for the previous three years, which was a sort of mega church in the Seattle area um, with a bunch of uh, satellite campuses. And I, I did an unpaid internship in their college ministry. And one of the things um, that I was privy to as an intern was that I would be able to go to the all staff meetings that happened once a week. And that particular summer, this was 20. 14 to 15. That summer through that school year, the thing that this um, church was discussing was whether or not they were going to reverse their position on LGBT people and whether or not they were going to switch from being completely non-affirming to maybe affirming. And for nine months, we read the book, uh, I think, Changing Our Minds. Um, and then the entire church staff just spun their wheels for nine months and just couldn't come to a conclusion. And I, I looked up the church this afternoon and they are still in the same position. There is no acceptance. I don't think if if you want to be a member, you cannot be married to someone of the same gender. Um, I have no idea what their position is on trans people. It's probably something along those lines as well, unfortunately. So I was going to say in your evangelical upbringing, um, and, and to use this as a transition to talking about your book, The Beginning mm -hmm. and the End of Evil, what were some of the ideas about evil, about sin that you remember being taught? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, we did like Bible study as an honest to God class uh, growing up. Um, and we, I mean, I had, I was, I was steeped in a lot of curricula that were like very Christian, like run by Southern Baptists. A Becca mm -hmm. book in particular uh, comes to mind. Um, but one of the things that my parents did that I'm really grateful for is they farmed us out, not farmed us out. Um, they allowed us to take classes from other homeschooling parents. Like we would swap classes. So my mom would teach science and then somebody else would, would teach us English. And one of the parents of one of my classmates in our local like co-op group um, taught theology. And so my junior and senior year of high school we went through the entirety of Wayne Grudem's systematic theology. And like, that was my introduction to the idea of just studying theology in general. I, I almost, I hate to say it, but it was very formative because I hadn't realized that you could study something like in depth like that. And now I, I do not agree with any of his views to be <laughs> clear, but it was one of those things where like going through this book and realizing that you could go this in depth on something about your beliefs or about somebody else's beliefs and like try to understand and formulate that. I'm not a big fan of his like puzzle piece idea of shaping the Bible into understanding the world as it works. Um, but it was also eye-opening at the same time because for the first time, I think I realized that I had the choice to read what someone was saying about the world and about religion and the choice to say, I believe this or I don't believe this. At the time, I also wrote a paper defending complementarianism, and I've also rejected that completely, too. But um, it was very formative for me because I, I just I didn't know that that was possible. And at the time, I also didn't know that it was possible for women to be theologians. And I didn't figure that out for a couple of years afterwards. Um, but growing up and reading his work and then reading the other like more explicitly religious textbooks, um, a lot of what I internalized about the nature of evil and the nature of sin was that it was disobedience, like disobedience to a higher power, rejection of authority, saying no when you should say yes, 
um, or doing something that explicitly harms somebody else. And I don't know if this is the case for necessarily like all evangelical thought, but in the, in the strain that I was raised in, there is this idea of personal responsibility and of intention and that sin is done by one person to another person. And then once that's done, there's harm that's done, but there's possibility for reconciliation between those two people. And it took me a very long time um, and a lot of patience from friends who had figured this out a little bit before I had um, to understand that there were other ways of viewing the world that were not nearly so black and white and binary um, and also different ways of viewing the world that understands the systems that set people up to fail, including this particular one that is so binary that you either you either are perfect and upright and good or you are sinning and there's no in between. And the only person who is the arbiter of that is whoever it is that's in charge um, at the time. And that, I don't know, I'm still sorting out through a lot of that, but that was my wow. understanding of, of evil was that it was just like, you're either good or you're not doing good. And if you're not doing good, you better get your heart right with Jesus as like a personal relationship with Jesus and not necessarily have to deal with any reparations or understanding the consequences of your sins that yeah. reverberate out to the rest of the community as well. Yeah, certainly the Christian idea of ethics is has been black and white. And that was even an apologetics type thing for a while, as they mm -hmm. would um, argue the, the moral argument for God is like that there is an absolute truth. And uh, I mean, mm -hmm. I, I say at the beginning of the show, I'm still an evangelical and, and, you know, I believe in God, I believe in Jesus. So I do believe that there's an absolute truth. It's just that I believe that most things in the world, even down to ethics, becomes gray really, really quick, depending on the situation and what's going on. And, and there are, I mean, and, and films help us to do that, even whether it be the alien franchise or another movie, they help us to see, um, Zach quoted a couple episodes ago, Roger Ebert, um, mm. movies are a machine for empathy. Yes. It helps us see from someone else's viewpoint, exactly what is happening in their life, what their options are, maybe the systems that are above them that kind of are giving them impossible choices. So stuff becomes messy really, really quickly. Mm -hmm. I, I, I feel I feel like the the phrase the biblical position on is, <laughs> is like most emblematic of, of the binary way of thinking about this. And and that was something that in my formative uh, church going years was was stated so often as how we are presenting this information to you is the biblical view of it mm -hmm. and so the idea of of checking out with an, what another denomination would say about it is ridiculous because just as you were less less trusting or or felt like something was a little off about liturgical churches that i i felt the same way I felt like I just I just lucked out and got into the place where they know all the right answers for this. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so I know the biblical position on it. And that's you know the way that Grudem probably couches most of the things he writes in that systematic theology is mm -hmm. well, you've you're opening this book because you want to know what the biblical position on all these things is. Surprise. 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 <laughs> I happen to know it all. <laughs> aren't aren't you lucky to have found me? Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh my goodness um and were you introduced to the idea of original sin as developed by augustine 
Yeah, I was. And actually, I ended up reading Augustine for the first time in college. But yeah, original sin, um, total depravity, like that whole deal was also very much something that went along with a lot of the the faith communities that I found myself in growing up, too. And it's something like I think at one point this must have been in high school. I was um, introduced to the idea of like five point Calvinism and three point Calvinism. And I was like, well, I I don't know that I like all of these five points. So maybe I'm a three point Calvinist, but I don't know which of those three points I'm most aligned with. (laughs) So still figuring all of, all of that out at that time too. Um, How Calvinist you are impacts how much you like alien three. (laughs) (laughs) Because I, I recognize so much in that. <laughs> oh yeah, it's it's like looking in a grimy mirror, and it's very unsettling. But the way the way that the men in that planet talk about themselves is like, oh yeah, that's how I was taught to think about myself. Great, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> we can get into specifics <laughs> later, but I I wanted to know. I'm always interested in um, how it is that people develop their fascinations, their obsessions. People that get really into film or whatever, and especially if you. Uh, were homeschooled or or raised in a in a more excluded uh, social environment, you know, Christian school and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, were your parents really particular about what you were allowed to see? Uh, were they, you know, checking the lyrics and and uh, reading reading the lists of the the Christian reviews for how many this and that words were in there? Uh, a full butt visible here, maybe a boo. Okay, <laughs> now that's that's <laughs> off. Like like was things pretty regulated in my house. My dad would like actually edit tapes. Oh yeah. (laughs) So yes and no. Um, My parents were very discerning about what we watched as a family. So I had a lot of younger brothers who were much younger than I was. So they wanted to make sure that there wasn't anything entering the house that would upset the youngest brother and in particular. Um, But also I was a very fearful child, like had a really hard time growing up, discerning between what what was true and what was false like literally like watching movies I think the first time my parents tried showing us the princess bride I freaked out completely and like had a really hard time like watching any live action movies for a while after that so um a little bit they did limit what was going on but I think that's because they knew our limits and for me in particular those limits were very shallow for a very long time as I grew up and got a little bit more adventurous um we we uh, subscribed to magazines like Plugged In and World Magazine. And so I read a lot of reviews to figure out what it was that I could get away with watching. And it kind of gets back at like that idea of like morality and what's wrong, right? Like there's this zero sum game of like, if there's so many swear words, or if you see a like a, a naked butt or something, like maybe it's not such a good movie to be watching. Um, <laughs> so I I did a lot of like, sort of reading these reviews to figure out what I could get away with. And then also because I was really curious about the movies that I knew I wasn't going to be allowed to watch. So I would read those reviews as well. Absolutely. Um, it was an incredible uh, resource. For really <laughs> so, that's a movie I got to check out. When I go to a friend's house, we are renting species. I, oh my god! Oh wow! Yeah. I, I never actually used it to subvert it, but what I would do is I would read the review and then I would spin the the language of the review to say like look at all this positive stuff that they say about it here and never bring up any of like the quote-unquote negative elements or or anything um that said also um my parents were also pretty good about like if we if we thought we could handle something they didn't necessarily like ban it like there were a few things that were expressly banned in our house and that was but my parents told us why that was the case so like 
South Park. Largely the case was my mom hated it, but also because it was, it was crude. Um, but they gave us a reason for everything that they said, like, now nah, we, we really don't want that in the house. And I really appreciate that them for drawing that line and giving us a reason beyond like, because I said so. Um, they made sure that we read the books quite often before we watched the movies, but we got to watch the movies fairly early on, depending on like what they were. So like Lord of the Rings, I think I read all three of those by the time I was 10 and then was watching the movies very quickly. I was like one of those kids in middle school who just like would not shut up about Lord of the Rings. Um, did that, did that rule extend to novelizations of the movies? Actually, no, no, I don't think that was, that was quite so much of a deal, but, uh, when twilight was a thing, so this, this dates me, I know, um, twilight came out when I was in high school. Um, I was not allowed to read Twilight until I had read Dracula. And that is one of the oh. greatest rules my mom ever set because Dracula <laughs> rules. It's that is book. really amazing. It's fantastic. I don't think she'd read it either at the time, um, but she was like, you got to read Dracula. You got to read something that is quote unquote, like high literature or whatever. Right. I get that. Yeah. I, I, as a okay. parent, that's awesome. Like the, the rule is, well, you know, if you want to read something that sucks, you have the freedom to do that. Literally sucks. I, I only ask, yes, <laughs> that you read a good iteration of that of that concept first. That's yeah, great. and I'm glad that she was like, you got to read this first and then have something to compare it to, and then you can think about it. And then she was like, sure, I'll buy you all the Twilight books. Have at it. Um, so, yeah, we were one of those families that did not do Harry Potter for a very long time. So, like, I knew all of the spoilers through, like, book six before book seven came out, I think. Um but again, my parents gave us their reasons for it. And then they were like, okay, once, once you think you're old enough and you're pretty sure you're old enough and you can give us a case for it, like, yeah, we'll let you watch that or we'll let you read that. intro to your book you talk about all these different ways that it's been interpreted by various people uh, i didn't even know that people talked about uh aliens as a as a vietnam war oh yeah uh, sort of thing but i, I guess I, i'm less interested in war things than a lot of other people who want to see the war and <laughs> everywhere but uh but you wrote alien and its sequels have been considered an anti-capitalist story vietnam war parable a refiguring of martyrs and eco-feminist satire a distillation of the fear of rape, a tale about abortion, a poorly conceived explanation of creationism, a haunted house thrill ride, a stalker film, a triumph, a mistake. Uh, you also mentioned a critique of colonialism. Mm -hmm. um, my kids would interpret it as really scary. Yes. Um, <laughs> and you've in this book decided to interpret much of the, uh, to interpret the series uh, largely through the lens of a theologian, uh, Catherine Keller, uh, mm -hmm. her her book Faces Face of the Deep or Faces. Did I write that down wrong? Face of the Deep. It is Face Face, face yes, of the Deep. Singular. A theology of becoming, uh, which is where the becoming in the title of your book mm -hmm. is from. Yes, becoming alien. Um, so Dave had heard of her because he's a theology nerd. I had not heard of her. Uh, and our audience, I'm not going to presume anything. Could you explain Keller's ideas uh, and how you came to see Alien through that book? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so she's a process theologian. Um, I am also not much of a theology nerd, but I married one. Uh, my husband has an MDiv, which is great. Um, and uh, so he was actually the one who introduced me to Catherine Keller. So if it weren't for my husband, this book would not exist. Um, so her ideas in this particular book um, are actually a challenge to the doctrine of creation ex nihilo, the idea that God created the world out of nothing, literally nothing. Um, and she does this by examining mostly the first two verses of the book of Genesis, where the spirit of God hovers over the waters and, and the earth is formless and void. And then God gives that space its shape. Um, and so the way that she talks about the world, her model of the world is that um, God didn't necessarily create the void, um, but God took the possibility of the void and created the relational world that we live in today. And so her her idea of the world is that there is every everything that is that exists is in created relationship with each other. And where sin enters the picture is where you deny the interrelations of other created beings or or of creation itself. Um, and when you do that, you are essentially denying the identity that God gave to creation. Um, in the case of human beings, quite often that, that that manifests as saying, you're not another person necessarily, or I don't see you as another person. I see you as a tool or as a means to an end, or not as the potential that you have that you could be. Um, and so taking a look at that versus taking a look at the alien movies, like those two ideas actually actually mesh quite well. Um, I think a lot of the other readings of Alien that exist out there, and most of most of these have to do with just like the original four or just the ones that Ridley Scott made, most of them have a nugget of truth to them, I think, but quite often those are just symptoms of a larger problem, which is the problem of evil in the world. Um, and so I tried to refigure the conversation about alien, not so much being about just sexism or just colonialism or just like any other social ill that you can think of, but of those things as being expressions of the same idea of just denying that interrelationship, whether that's the alien covering somebody's face as a face hugger or turning it in or turning a human being into an incubator for its young or the company treating its crews as expendable and as not worthy of consideration as people, but as a means to an end towards profits. Um, and so those those ideas resonated very strongly with me, especially when you get into some of the later movies where the ideas that are being thrown around in these movies are extremely complicated and don't necessarily always land, but I can sort of see like the fence that they're swinging for and I appreciate them for that. Yeah. And they don't ever, there's not really an explanation ever as to where evil comes from in mm-hmm. the films, right? It's kind of just this menacing force. And if you take the alien as kind of a personification of evil, this monster in the dark that's dripping acid, and that is uh, just terrifying, as we've all been talking about. And yeah, I think, you know, even uh, taking the scriptures, that evil at least the beginning of evil is a lot more mysterious than I think theologians, Wayne Grudem and other people would give it credit for Mm -hmm. Um, as far as like where it came from and 
what happened at the beginning. I mean, obviously, I believe God created everything. I had this professor back in college. Uh, his name was Dr. Skip Forbes at Grace College and Grace Theological Seminary back in Indiana. And he was one of the coolest professors ever. Um, I really loved him. I think he really taught people how to think. Uh, he was a hardcore Calvinist, but he would never have messages about like God hates you or anything like that. He he believes he believed that God loved you. He was one of the only Democrats on campus, um, but he had this whole thing about the Calvinist origins. Democrat? <laughs> yeah, believe it or not, he might be the only one ever. I don't know, but you know, he he was out there, and uh, he had this whole thing on the origin of evil that you know it originated with God. I think he, um, mm. if I am remembering correctly. He would say even the the Garden of Eden, uh, Genesis chapter three, was slanted or rigged on the, uh, almost for a fall. Hmm. Uh, so God can demonstrate His love for humanity with the cross. Um, you know, or it, it was a long time ago, so I don't know if I'm remembering all of His points that well. But I always thought that was really interesting. And he was, you know, he was an old Baptist guy. He was from the Northeast, so he kind of had this cynical edge to him. And he had this little sly grin, and he would always bring up the verse, um, Isaiah 45, 7, where it says, I, meaning God, form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. And there are actually some translations that translate that as I create evil, hmm. which is a very interesting you know, but but back to Catherine Keller's work, it seems like an interesting fit of God is shaping or forming the possibility of mm -hmm. something there in the beginning, in the watery abyss. And there's a lot of scholars that believe the Enuma Elish and Epica Gil Gilgamesh uh, influenced uh, that beginning of Genesis all have to do with like watery worlds and kind of the formation of, of creation and all We're that. We're talking about alien, not water world. <laughs> right. Yes. <laughs> Different. No, no Kevin Costner. <laughs> oh, Kevin, man. Kevin Costner in an alien movie, though. I mean, Ridley whoa. Scott's still out there. Getting back to evil. Um, let's see. You write toward the beginning of your book, uh, quote, she, Dr. Keller, sees sin not as chaos, not as violence, but as discretion. That is creaturely relations that deny and exploit their own interrelations. Evil is a denial of the inherent humanity and worth of the other, a casual disregard of the value of life, a reduction of others from the status of person to the status of tools. And um, I wanted to ask you just across the six alien movies, again, discounting the alien versus predator stuff, we're not going to go there. But across <laughs> the six movies, how do you see like the idea of evil playing out? Like how, how is evil presented in, in those films? Yeah. So the first one, of course, is always the most straightforward. And that is literally just there's an alien out there and its whole purpose is to kill and maim people so that it can keep existing. And then there also there's a company that somehow has heard of this alien and wants to obtain it for its weapons division. So there's like multiple facets of evil, even at this level happening. So there's the evil that the alien performs on the human members of the crew who are unlucky enough to stumble across it. There is also the evil of the company saying, like, we're going to send these people out to try to retrieve this alien. Um, and then there's also the potential for further evil on down the line because the company wants to take this alien and it also wants to use it in order to create more weapons and use it to both use it in the sense of like, we're going to take the, this, this creature and we're going to make it our own and we're going to treat it as a tool. And then we're also going to use it to continually like discreate other people further on down the line. Um, so that's the first one. All of the alien movies kind of follow the same like plot structure roughly. And some people 
dislike that and some people like that. I personally am in the camp that loves that you can tell a different story using the same plot structure, kind of like kind of like a song, like a pop song or something. Um, like the 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 whole repetition is part of the story. And repetition is something that Dr. Keller gets into in her book as well. Like she pictures time as being kind of a fractal where there are consequences that spiral out from what we do um, in ways that we can't even predict. So for aliens, the idea is that the consequences of the first movie um, are such that the discovery of the alien and the alien's little planetoid are going to lead to the eventual death and destruction of an entire colony of people. And then it also gets into this idea of like, it's also a Vietnam War allegory, but it's also an, it's also a story about um, colonialism and attitudes of colonialism, which also tend to discreate the creation that is already out there and trying to use that for whatever the colon the colonists own ends are alien three goes a lot more like in-depth and cerebral and decides to talk more about what happens internally once you've internalized a lot of these ideas of discreation so much so that the movie is a prison drama about prisoners who have decided that they are no longer human beings they are just insert crime here and that's all that they're able to be and do at this point like they have committed their sins in such a way and then they have they have come around to this this theology that because they have done something wrong they're going to have to spend the rest of their lives atoning for it and they can never do that so they are always going to just be murderers stranded on a rock somewhere in the middle of space there's no absolutely no no grace no hope in that situation it's just depravity shame and just the the piling on of guilt until um, Ripley comes yeah. in and she breaks the cycle. I mean, she also brings an alien with her, so everybody's sort of screwed anyway. But um, Ripley also, as the lone woman on this planet, is a reminder to these these men who are who are trapped in this prison, sort of almost of their own making, because the prison has at this point been decommissioned. They have decided to stay on and continue serving out a sentence that they have technically already served. When Ripley shows up, she reminds them that they are not just murderers and killers and criminals they are also human beings who exist and who matter even though the company that they are the prisoners of and the religion that they are also prisoners of has has convinced them of the fact convinced them of the idea not the fact that they aren't really worth anything anymore and so i think one of the most powerful pieces of alien 3 is that there is this idea that like even if you think you are too far gone you are not too far gone there is always a potential for for grace and for redemption even if you're in really bleak circumstances um alien resurrection is a very strange movie <laughs> we've alluded <laughs> to this a little bit before it's certainly the grossest out of all of the alien movies which is definitely a feat um but it is also the movie that is the least, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It, it is the most willing to poke fun at itself and at everything else that has come before it. And so it kind of refigures the alien story almost as a farce. And so um, Dr. Keller has a chapter in her book about the book of Job being a farcical retelling of the book of Genesis. Um, and so that also feels like a very natural fit to me, like, resurrection is the same plot told a very different way so 
according to Dr. Keller's reading, Job is the same plot of Genesis told a completely different way. And those, those two um, viewpoints actually mesh up quite well. Um, resurrection is also vital because it brings in the idea of the androids as being also created people, not necessarily human, but they're people um, as actual players in this story. Up until that point, they're kind of set dressing and like there's robots running around, but there's robots running around because it's a sci-fi story. Um, and Alien Resurrection actually deals in the idea that these robots are also people too, and that they are also subject to the same harm that sin and evil could can visit on human beings because human beings keep visiting that same sin and evil on them as well. Um, which is a very nice shift because the latter two like prequel movies, Prometheus and Alien Covenant, are primarily a story about one of those androids coming to discover the boundaries that have been set in place for him by his creators and completely rebelling against those. It's, it's also a Paradise Lost story. It's also very much drawing, especially Alien Covenant, very much drawing on um, the Frankenstein story as well. Um, mm. Like there's a lot of really rich illusions happening there. And so again, continual just retelling of the same story, but showing different facets and different aspects of how evil harms others. And then the effects of what happens, like once that harm has been visited, what are the further consequences beyond that, both in society and in the world around us, not just on the individual level. And I find that really, really compelling, especially coming out of a context where the idea of evil just being one thing between two people, um, coming to understand that one thing can reverberate through generations and, and across space and time um, in ways that we can never really fully predict ourselves. Now you, you mentioned discreation mm -hmm. uh, a couple of times in there. That's, that's not a commonly used word. No, uh, that, that I'm, <laughs> it's Dr. I'm Keller's word. I was going to ask if that was a concept that you, that you got from Keller as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, 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 I Googled it. And like the first thing I saw was like uncommon, <laughs> <Or something> like, <laughs> like, like not really a word that people use. Um, mm -hmm. But it, it has a much richer meaning than just the opposite of creation. Mm -hmm. uh, could, could you talk a little about uh, discreation and, and what Keller would say about it and, and how you see it uh, being uh, enacted in these films? I, I love that you're allowing me to, to wax poetic about a single word. Um, my inner <laughs> linguist is very happy about this. Um, I love discreation because there are so many different meanings that you can apply to it, and yet it is its own specific word. So the idea is that you can... To discreate something, it could be a passive action. You just allow something to just sort of settle and then slowly lose its shape. But there's also this idea of like picking at the threads of reality and saying like, this thing was created, but we're going to take it and we're going to destroy it and not just like make it into something new or even twist it to other ends. Kind of the idea of like Tolkien's idea of evil, where evil can really only twist something that already exists to other purposes. Um Discreation takes that created nature, and not only does it destroy that creation, it also makes it so that it is almost like that potential was never even there. Like the threads are frayed, you can't put them back together in quite the same way again. Um, so I find I find that really compelling and also kind of of terrifying because I don't know, just the the idea of of being treated as though 
everything that you are and everything that you stand for doesn't matter and doesn't exist in quite the same way. Like that, that is, that is a horrifying concept um, and a very visceral one. And so it's all packaged up very neatly into this one, this one word that is uncommon, but it works. In the, <laughs> now with evil being throughout the alien franchise, do you see um, means and modes of, of salvation and in rising out of, or, not contributing, I guess, to the evil that, that people see on screen. Mm. It's a bleak series. I don't yeah. know that the, I don't know that it has any answers along those lines. Um, and I, to be perfectly honest, I wasn't really looking for them. Maybe I should mm -hmm. have been. Um, I think that the movies that end on a more positive note, not all of them do. Salvation isn't necessarily like fixing what has been harmed because you can't necessarily like fix what has been de discreated, but a removal of yourself and other people from the situation that is perpetuating that harm in the first place. So Ripley gets out, she gets out on the shuttle. She takes Jones with her. Um, she gets Newt out of the colony and aliens. She, she removes as many people as she possibly can. And she's constantly advocating for people to just get out, leave nuke the site from orbit, right. um, <laughs> rescue as many people as you can, and then just get them out of that situation. I don't think that the movies are necessarily conscious of this, but I think the idea is that there are some forms of evil that you cannot reverse. So you just have to get out of that situation and then you have to go build something elsewhere new, not using those systems that enabled yeah. that evil in the first place contribute to a beautiful creation ordered creation <laughs> elsewhere yeah, that, yeah that's really good that's really good the, the ideas related to salvation as we think about it uh through you know the story of jesus and all uh come into play in alien three and four when when mm -hmm. ripley is is set up to be like the mary of the xenomorphs uh and and they sort of play with different ideas of her. With, I mean, when she sacrifices herself at the end, she's falling down in a Christ pose. Uh, Depends on the version of the movie. Okay, yeah, I saw the yeah. extended. Is that so true? The, yeah, so there's one wow. where she's in a Christ pose, and then in the theatrical version, um, the alien is actually born as she is falling. Spoiler alert, I guess, for a 20-something-year-old movie. But the alien is born from her as she is falling, and she cradles it. And it is very much a Madonna pose. Oh, Yeah. So, yeah, and then, they play then with there's those. also allusions wow. to the Passion of Joan of Arc, mm -hmm. uh, which I I thought it was kind of interesting that even though Ridley Scott didn't direct this one, I think he liked that aspect because three years or 1997 he does GI Jane, yeah. and, <laughs> and Demi Moore has can. that same haircut, so he's got a thing for that. But yeah, I I liked the idea of thinking about if it had worked, if if she had been able to actually be the Mary of this alien race and bring forth the, the, the queen as, as that that's what was inside her and, and can continue their line forever and they could take over the universe. I, I, I like the idea of a movie from that perspective. And I, I just couldn't help but think about like the ending credits rolling and a beautiful piano coming in and, Ripley, did you know oh, no. that your baby boy? <laughs> oh man! But the the baby that she gives birth to in in Alien Four is is a a merger of her cloned human DNA with alien DNA, and it's 
it's a malformed uh, monstrosity. One of the most disgusting things I've ever seen on screen or off, honestly. It's, it's <laughs> so you really, have this to look forward to. <laughs> really, really gross. Mm-hmm. No, I was going to say, I'm definitely going to check out Alien Resurrection now. <laughs> yes, good. Uh, be prepared for a lot saying. of like lime green goop just flying everywhere. I, I'm it's game. It's truly nasty. <laughs> I'm totally in. Do you? I, I, I read today that uh, that Ridley Scott didn't do Alien specifically because he wasn't allowed. They, they didn't want him to do it. Uh, he was like the fourth choice to, to direct the first movie. Yeah. And, for know, whatever reason, like Cameron was ahead of him and Cameron had made like Piranha two, I think at that point. Oh, and, and the Terminator. Yeah, he made the Terminator, but he was already on board to direct aliens by the time ter- the Terminator was in production. Like he actually used the Terminator as like a testing ground for everything he was going to do in aliens. And, and I'm sure this has been talked a lot, a, a lot, but it's just wild that that Cameron gave us the two most iconic representations of militantly <laughs> strong female characters yes. <laughs> in maybe yeah. the history of cinema between Sarah Connor and and Ellen Ripley. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I I don't know. I don't know if you you'd probably just pick pick Ripley, but. Right, do you enjoy the Terminator movies I as well? I love is the Terminator. Okay, well, I love the first two, the Terminators. I actually have not seen three or four. I saw the most recent one in theaters, but that was just because Mackenzie Davis was in it. Yeah. And I wanted same, to see Mackenzie yeah, Davis. In exactly the same reason. <laughs> I was not. And I enjoyed it. it. Like it was, it was fine. Um, but I don't have nearly the same loyalty towards the Terminator movies as I do towards the Alien movies. And I think it's because I imprinted on the Alien movies much earlier. Um, the I saw was like the one for me. Mm, yeah, I saw uh, Aliens. Uh, like I think it was a TV cut on TNT when I was a teen and like I saw part of it didn't even finish the whole thing and I was like I want in on this and then I saw Alien for the first time like a week or two later alone oh, in the dark at like 11 p.m. which was like oh wow you oh, didn't see them in order nope I didn't so I knew I knew who got out although I did not know that Ian Holm Ash uh was a, a replicant was a robot at the time, um, so that was that a huge one shock. Of the great for me. reveals to it's me. So yeah, good. I, I couldn't. I, I did so not glad. see Bilbo Baggins the same way like ever again. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, that to me was an astonishing scene. Yes. Yeah, just brilliant. When I think back to the eighties, I mean the whole Reagan era and kind of the. I mean. I mean, because you have the John Rambo's Sylvester Stallone, and then you have Schwarzenegger making his Predator movie and Terminator and kind of the bulging biceps and the the masculine stuff. And just like Zach said, to have, you know, James Cameron come along, give us Sarah Connor, but then this Ripley character who is a total badass. Mm-hmm. And I'm even thinking, I just watched Aliens again last night. And who was it? Hicks that was handing her the gun and was trying to mansplain to her how to use this weapon. Oh no, was... I love that scene. I I don't yeah. I don't read it as mansplaining at all. I see it oh, as really? like yeah, I see it as he trusts her and knows that she can has a handle enough on herself and her environment to understand like the power behind this tool that he's teaching her how to use. And so mm-hmm. he's just going to give her the tool that she needs in order to do the job. I yeah. love that scene. I love that they're yeah, just, I, I saw oh, it as flirting like, throughout. Here's the particularities <laughs> of this exact model. Mm-hmm. Like you know how to use generally weaponry, but mm-hmm. like here's here's the things about this. But 
speaking of, of masculinity, I liked what you, what you noted that uh, about with Alien 3, uh, you said uh, masculine theologies, mm-hmm. uh, argues Keller, deny complexity, and in so doing, attempt to explain the unexplainable. Yes. Uh, explore the unexplorable and colonize the uncolonizable. They're reductive. And the prisoners, we should say, this whole movie, Alien 3, takes place on a, a planet that is a prison run mm-hmm. by the company uh, from the first two movies that are out there trying to find this alien so that they could bring it back and turn it into a weapon and make money out of it. So I don't know if these are people that broke laws in their capacity as employees of the company, uh, if they were you know, raping their, their fellow crew members or if the company is doing a private prison thing and these Unclear. are people that broke laws on earth, but um, these are people, people living there and, and uh, Ripley uh, after, you know, at her escape pod, I think from the end of alien two ends up landing mm-hmm. on this planet. And so she has to live with them mm-hmm. and it is a, they're basically like a celibate order of monks mm-hmm. um, who define themselves only by the things that they do that got them in that place. They are rapists. They are murderers. Uh, and that is who they are. That's the sum total of their identity uh, first and, you know, beyond, beyond them ever considering their, their general humanity. Um, I guess D- David Fincher does a lot of, movies about different forms of masculinity yes <laughs> uh, but um yeah as i said earlier i connected to that i i hear them you know they repeatedly have a prayer that that references were sinners in the hand of an angry god mm-hmm. um in hearing them talk it sounded very similar to things i heard in church uh ideas of total depravity that you know we are incapable of doing anything out of purely good motives because evil is, is so central to our beings. I related to that in a really cringy boy, am I glad I'm not there anymore sort of way. And it was interesting that that presented it as a prison. (laughs) And I was like, (laughs) yeah, I, my theology put me in a prison that I happily walked into for a while and mm-hmm. stayed there for well well too long. I found that to be really interesting how you specifically noted that that is a very masculine theology. Yes, and I think it also gets at I mean there's there's a lot of history in the church of you know the 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 man is the head and then like it's it's the hierarchy is like god, pastor, man, the rest of the family and so on. Um and it also kind of gets at that idea of like sin also just being disobedience and being that binary disobedience. Like these, these men committed a wrong, they hecked up and that's all that they, that's all that they have going for them now. Like, and they, they screwed up so badly that there's no way for them to atone. Um, And I find it interesting that they're like in a form of what is explicitly called like Christianity of like a millennial apocalyptic variety. Um, but there's no Jesus at all in that. Like they, their beliefs have been completely subsumed into this idea just of sin and no chance for no chance for redemption in the slightest. Um, 
And it makes me incredibly sad because it does remind me very much of a lot of theologies that I've bumped into in, in my own life um, where you are reduced just to the things that you have done that make you no longer like quote unquote worthy of God's love or, or worthy of, of existing in, in society. Um, and I think that there are so many more imaginative ways to view the world than that. But first you got to get rid of the model of sin that exists in that way. Like there has to be a viewpoint where maybe not everybody in authority knows exactly what they're talking about. And yes, there is sin. Like I completely (laughs) agree with that. There is evil in the world. And when evil is done, there has to be something done in order to make it right. But we don't get to say what that is. And if we do, then that's us trying to, I don't know, feels feels like it's it's trying to take on some of that authority that God has. And that just feels wrong to me, too. And even the thought of um, what you were talking about before, individual sins or sins between individuals, kind of ignoring that there are systemic sins and mm-hmm. national sins. And that's very biblical. I mean, the Bible talks about nations sins and and sins of larger and collective groups um Mm -hmm. but uh we're coming i think to the end of our time here and you've been so gracious to come on our show and thank you so much for being here but before you go do you mind if uh we give you just a rapid fire round of questions sure real quick okay i'll i'll take the first one um every single alien movie has been directed by a man but if there were going to be a future installment um, directed by a female director, who would be your choice? Catherine Bigelow. I would love to see Catherine oh. Bigelow take on the Alien movies. Oh, that would that would rock. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So she's a director of The Hurt Locker and Zero Dark Thirty. Yeah. That and would Near be Dark, uh, which also has a lot of alien uh, actors in it. Lance Henriksen's in it. Um, Jeanette Goldstein's in it. Like, there's oh, Bill Paxton's in it. Um, I haven't seen that. I need to check that one out. Oh, it's so good. It's a little hard to find, um, but it's my all-time favorite vampire movie. It is very good. Wow. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Another one and, on the list. I have two on my list after tonight. Sweet. With with all the talk about you know us never really knowing where the alien comes from and the, the origins of this evil and all that, if we're talking about other directors, um, not a woman and not a good director, but... Uh, I guarantee that if Ron Howard got to direct an installment of the alien movies, we would find the full backstory of that alien and why he's so darn cranky. <laughs> oh, Who no. was mean to that alien <laughs> when he was growing up and made him feel bad about himself. Yeah. I mean, if the prequels do end up going off in the direction that I think they are, they might explain a little bit too much of it, which is kind of why I don't want there to be anything post alien covenant personally, but yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm there with you there, too. Um, so my my nine-year-old, I, I asked my kids, like, all right, I'm talking to an expert on these. So if you got a question, let me know now. Uh, and he wanted to know which part of Alien you think is the funniest, <laughs> which um, I think that's, that's hard to find. But uh, he noted, I have a little clip here. This is the part that he thinks is the funniest. Um, the voice you're about to hear is John Hurt. Uh, 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 uh. Oh no, not again. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, my baby. 
So he had met, he had mixed together in his head uh, that amazing scene from Spaceballs, which <laughs> they use the same actors, same costuming, and all that. But the alien that bursts out of the chest does a Michigan J Frog routine. Um, but it it I thought it was an interesting question because I can't think of much that's funny in there. Um, there's a scene. It's before they find out that the face hugger has dropped off Kane. So John Hurt who was in that clip um, where everybody's just sort of bumming around in the kitchen waiting for news about whether or not they can leave the planet or not. And there's a little bit of a back and forth where Harry Dean Stanton literally only says the word right over and over again. And they point out like every time Parker um, Yafit Kato rest in peace um, uh, says something like Harry Dean Stanton's just says right. And like echoes him. Um, and actually, I find that scene pretty funny, too, because you can tell that he knows the joke is on him and he's still going to play into it anyway. <laughs> I love Harry Dean. And then my 11 year old is a big cat lover. And he, he Jones, he thought was the second best character oh, yeah. in the in the first movie. He saw bits and pieces of the second one, sort of wandered in and out of the room, covered his eyes a few times. <laughs> and um, he may re- return to that. But he wants to know your thoughts on Jones and if you think that Aliens would have been better with Jones instead of Newt. Oh, oh, that's a good question. Um, I appreciate Ripley because she's not willing to put Jones in that situation a second time, even though she has to go back. So... I think I would think a little less of Ripley if Jones had come back, but also your 11 year old is very right. Jones is the second best <laughs> character <laughs> in a stacked cast. Yeah. I mean, the alien doesn't kill him. He gets, he gets right up close to it and hisses and just goes away. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, how about, um, I think I, I read somewhere you're a big, obviously a big fan of science fiction. Uh, what are your like, say top five science fiction movies, not including any in the alien franchise? Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see here. Um, Annihilation, uh, which came out in, I think, 2018. Very good. Very good movie. That one. I've yep. been in meaning the theater, to rewatch it sound, like all quarantine. Oh, it's the so sound cool. design at the end. Incredible. In the, I, I saw it like three times in the theaters. It was Same. amazing. Oh, it's, it's fantastic. Um, one of the movies that sort of uh, Annihilation sort of draws from uh, Andre Tarkovsky's Stalker. Um, which is a movie I was not remotely prepared for. Winton knowing literally nothing about it, didn't even know the runtime. And it's a two hour and 45 minute long movie and it takes its sweet time. So that's a short one for him. <laughs> yeah, it really is. <laughs> yeah. Um, that movie genuinely changed my life. Like I have a tattoo that was inspired by Stalker, like incredible movie. Um, uh, Empire Strikes Back for sure. I like um, it. Yeah. It's just it's that's my favorite that's my favorite star wars (laughs) and it's it's yeah i mean last last jedi really creeps up there for me i think um because that one also came along at the right time in my life but empire strikes back is is the best star wars um hands down um i have a very soft spot for joss whedon's serenity um which was it's it's one of those movies where like yeah it's a continuation of a tv show um but it's also a very strong comfort movie of mine. I have a lot of mixed emotions about Joss Whedon himself, but I really appreciate a lot of the art that he makes. Um, and so Serenity is very, very high up there for me. And then probably 
I will, I always go back and forth. I'm honestly not sure which I prefer more, um, but either the Terminator or T2. And I think T2 is mostly like on the merit of the chase scene in the canal where Arnold's on the, on the motorcycle, like doing the shotgun flip. One of the coolest yeah. things I've ever seen in my life. But totally. I think as a whole, I, I think I prefer the original Terminator over that one. So Ooh. I think that's five. It's, it's a that tough call. Five. You got it. Yeah, it is a tough. Co- I, yeah, I just love T2 so much. I saw it when I was 11 years old in the theater and it just blew oh, blew my mind. That I mean, just incredible. amazing. Yeah. yeah. And then there's so many cool. others, like The Matrix, 2001 A Space Odyssey, like all of those other ones, but like yeah. off the Interstellar, which is a movie that I was dragged kicking and screaming into liking by my husband. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> I never got there. Oh, man. Uh, well, I guess my, my last little question. Uh, this is breaking news. My, my wife sent me this story today. Apparently, several species of bacteria have been found aboard the International Space Station. Nope. <laughs> Three of them are unknown to science. Nope. <laughs> so, is this it? Probably, honestly. <laughs> Time to batten down the hatches. This, they're going to they're I, gonna evolve really quickly into sea urchin-looking things. Oh, and no. That's how you know it's going to all go down. I just thought of the shot in the prequels of the little black dust going into the ear canal. Hard pass. No. <laughs> Time to quarantine everybody. It's, Not that we aren't all already. Over. So it was, oh, I, I'm glad I had the opportunity to do a podcast for a bit because it's coming to an end. Oh, man. Avoid <laughs> contemplating certain death by talking about contemplating certain people. That's great. <laughs> well, uh, Sarah Welch Larson, it has been just a delight to meet you. And thank you so much for coming on our podcast. Everybody, the book is Becoming Alien, the beginning and the end of evil in science fiction's most idiosyncratic film franchise. Uh, buy that wherever you can get good books, right? Uh, if you don't want to support the massive uh bezos empire uh, are there good places that people could get that sarah uh yeah you can get it straight from the publisher at Wiffenstock. uh you can get it on bookshop there's a couple of other places that are coming out if you're a chicago local it's actually at women and children first which is the local feminist bookstore it's amazing please support them too um but yeah thank you so much for having me on this this was a delight as well Yes. And if people want to follow you around on social media, where can they find you? Uh, I am all over the internet, but especially on Twitter at Dodgy Boffin. That's D-O-D-G-Y-B-O-F-F-I-N, all one word. Um, That is also conveniently the name of my website, DodgyBoffin.com. And uh, I mostly spend my time shouting about science fiction and then occasionally writing about movies and occasionally writing about movies and theology as well. Yeah, look forward to checking out all your stuff there. It was a just a fascinating book. So thank you so much. Wonderful. Thank you. Dave, uh, you have homework now. You you have to watch Alien Resurrection. Yes. I, I have seen all of them now, uh, and I very much enjoyed uh, reading Sarah's book immediately after I finished uh, watching the whole series. And it was highly illuminating uh really enjoyable talking to her about those absolutely and uh well this has been another episode of veterans of culture wars thank you so much for listening to us if you would uh please leave us a rating wherever you get podcasts and also if you could leave us a review as well as that helps other people find the show if you want to look us up on Twitter, I am at Dave J. Lester. Zach is at Muzak, M-U-Z-A-C-H. And uh, we also have 
uh, a podcast or uh, a Twitter handle for our show, and that's at BCW Pod on Twitter. Um, look up Zach's music, muzak.bandcamp.com, and you can uh, read my occasional blogging if you really, really want to on dangerouswhope.wordpress.com. Music and logo for the show done by the one and only Zach. And uh, thank you, as always, for coming down to the DCW. Uh, re- remember that the, the podcast is free, but you still need to talk to yourself.